CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. Stream CIUT at www.ciut.fm. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Well, uh, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show on this series of phenomenal activists who've actually changed policies and laws. I know there are a lot of activists out there. Uh, You do amazing work, but it's really the select few who've actually broken through that politicians to act and to change laws, uh, many of which actually save lives. I have just such an activist with me to start off the show today, and that is David Lepofsky. Uh, David is a disability rights activist and a visiting professor in law at Osgood, uh, and it's my delight and honor to have him. Welcome, David, to the Radical Reverend Show. It's great to be on your show. So let's start at the beginning of David. (laughs) So tell me, you know, where were you born and a little bit about your childhood and growing up? I was born in Toronto uh, back in 1957, around the time of Sputnik going up into orbit. I was born uh, with partial vision in one eye and no eyesight in the other eye. I was nearsighted. You would have seen me riding a bike, but if you saw me reading a book, I would have been held, holding it up to my nose uh, so I could read it. Or watching TV, I had to be right near the screen, even if it was a huge 19-inch black and white screen. Um, and uh, I went to school here, and uh, I was a... Uh, rambunctious kid, as were we all. But when I turned uh, between 13 and 14, my remaining eyesight started getting worse. We didn't know why, and it was gradual. But within weeks or months, I couldn't read print anymore, even if it was large. Uh, And we had to decide where I was going to go to school. Now, Canada is an sadly always has been way behind the states at providing equal educational opportunity to kids with disabilities. And the overwhelming first impulse was of the system was I had to go to the Ross McDonald School for the Blind in in Brantford. Well, I and my mother toured it and neither of us wanted me to go there. I I didn't want to go to school with blind kids. I want to go to school with kids. I had friends here. I want to live with my family. Um, I didn't want to be sent to some very segregated setting. and But the system wasn't geared that way. And the school board blindness experts said, oh, you have to go there uh, to learn Braille. Well, my, my mother, may she rest in peace, who was an incredible woman and an incredible influence in my life, <clears throat> took on the school board and said, I want my, my kid coming to your school. And the school board said, well, what are you going to do if we won't provide support with our Braille instructors for him. And my mother said, if you won't, then I'll learn Braille and I'll support him myself. And she embarrassed them into letting me uh, stay in my local school. Well, they predicted I'd fail. I didn't. Uh, In fact, I got into university at a grade 12 when we still had a grade 13. I skipped over it. Uh, And um, that initial battle became in uh, kind of a an important milestone in my life. First, I learned from my mother um, to stand up for your rights. 
and not to be cowed by bureaucracies or supposed experts. Um, and uh, to, to shoot for the sky, don't, don't settle for anything less. Um, and I never looked back. I never looked back. That became the, uh, the, the sort of the pattern of my life, I guess. So let's talk about your university, David. Um, speaking here to David Lepofsky, is a disability rights lawyer, uh, visiting prof, and most importantly for this show, he is the activist behind some very important legislation, which we will talk about shortly. But so university, you're, you're thrown into a whole new group um, and you're a person who has a disability. What was, you know, challenges? What happened? Well, the biggest challenge I faced was actually because I was so... Um, ahead of myself in school. I was, um, I guess about 17 when I started in undergrad, I was 19 or so when I got to law school, I was a lot younger than other people and socially that's a bit harder. But um, I, technology kept changing and I kept uh, benefiting from new technology. You know, we read a lot in school. Well, in the uh, early to mid uh, 1970s, okay, we got books on tape, uh, but listening to them at uh, normal speed is incredibly boring, but new technology came out to let us speed up the tape and keep the voice at normal pitch. So I learned early on how to read an hour of tape in a half an hour and, and retain more. Lots of blind people do that. It's not unique to me. Um, and just finding new ways of doing things. Uh, and uh, at, at each stage, when I got to law school, uh, they were Osgood Hall Law School, where I went as a student, where I now teach part-time um, as a visiting professor, um, has always had a really good track record of being uh, uh, way out front in accommodating uh, students with disabilities. And I, I, uh, I had a great time doing it. But the most amazing experience I had was after I became a lawyer, um, I got a scholarship and did a master's of law at Harvard uh, Law School in 81-82. Uh, and... Uh, I focused on constitutional uh, rights when our Charter of Rights was just coming into effect. So I was part of the cohort of the first Canadian law students to be studying the Charter with a view to coming back and, and practicing in the area. That was very exciting. But when I got to the Harvard Law School, they'd had legislation in place to guarantee equal rights for students with disabilities way ahead of us. And they were way ahead of us. And for the first time, I wasn't the only one. I, there were, I think, six blind students at the Harvard Law School. I actually got mistaken for someone else for a change. It was actually great. Uh, and the supports I got there um, showed me the extent to which we could do more by treating people as equals. And, and that also was an important milestone that I that affected me when I when I came back here and started my practice. Uh, speaking to David Lepofsky here, uh, I'm still reeling from the fact that you got into law school at 19 years old. I mean, most people probably listening to this are. Um, and, you know, we have this, this thought as Canadians that we're better than the Americans uh, in, in social services, that we're, that certainly where healthcare is concerned, um, that we're we're ahead and you just kind of burst that bubble um so so that's not your experience no uh, when i go to the states now or when i went then uh, i'm a very proud canadian and we are out ahead in front in, in some areas like uh, like public health care but when it comes to disability issues I, I i say that when i enter american airspace i feel like i'm entering the future 
And when I come back to Canada, I just, I, you know, I, I love my country, but in terms of the way we uh, 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 treat and provide for people with disabilities, uh, in terms of inclusion and accessibility, we are way behind and we have no excuse. We're a very fortunate and affluent country. Uh, and yet uh, we really drop the ball on this over and over. Why do you think that is? I mean, what is there something in our history? Something uh, I, I think it's maybe a combination of two things. And I've often wondered this. The first is, um, I'm going to sound like a law prof for a minute, but I find that Canadians are better at defining rights than Americans. I know that's an oversimplification, but I find that Americans are better at implementing them. So if you look at the Americans with Disabilities Act, it's actually got a weaker definition of rights than the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act does. But they're way ahead because they've done a much better job of putting in place the infrastructure and the public infrastructure to enforce, implement, uh, and promote it than we did. Uh, the second reason is um, we, they are very much influenced by their civil rights tradition. In the 60s, it was civil rights for racialized folks, especially Black people. Um, in the early 70s, it was uh, uh, adding to that was the women's rights movement. And the disability rights movement in the States was inspired that and by that and fueled by the number of young people who were returning home from Vietnam with serious injuries. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, you can go on Netflix and watch the movie Crip Camp, which is about that incredible movement. And they're kind of our spiritual uh, godparents of our movement here in Canada. But you, you can see how they were influenced by the, the civil rights battles of the 60s and early 70s to, to push forward and make the system change. Now, before we leave your growing up and going to school period, I want to drill down a little bit. You talked about uh, going to the future and going to the States and particularly experience at Harvard. As a law student, as a blind law student, just so people out there in listener land understand what we're talking about, what did they do differently than you experienced up here? In, in, okay, so mm -hmm. uh, this is way before we had books that you could read through document scanners and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, you used human beings to read to you. Well, in, in, in my uh, situation, I had to send my books to CNIB and they would record them on tape, but so often uh, that may not be done as uh, in time for me to read things in time for the class where I needed them. Not always, but there were times there was a lag. Uh, or I would announce in class, could somebody, uh, would some people volunteer to do some reading for me? And, and they would. Uh, and I'd pass around a list and I could do my own. When I got to Harvard, they had a couple of university students on the payroll at Harvard just to recruit volunteer readers. So I would just phone these folks up and say, I need eight readers. And next thing you know, I'd have names and phone numbers and they'd be calling me and just saying, what time do you want me to come to your dorm room to read to you? That's... Uh, the kind of difference, not that it was a big amount of money, but it made a huge difference. The, the second thing is, um, and man, I've learned from this lesson, they let us know early on that they, under federal legislation, uh, the, the university was required to have uh, a senior point person uh, to address accessibility and inclusion needs. So here's an example. I'm gonna give you two really quick ones. Uh, um, when I um, 
was going to go down there. I needed a dorm room and I needed one that was big enough that I could have a, uh, a, a separate room for people to record for me. And they had some dorm rooms that were bigger, two bedroom and, or two room and some that were smaller. Well, I listed this all on my application and I got assigned a really small room. I phoned up about a week before I went down there to start school to the housing office and said, hey, I need something bigger and you're supposed to give a priority to students with disabilities. And I got some, um, like a summer student who didn't have the authority to fix it. Well, I called the associate dean of students or the dean of students at the Harvard Law School who was the designated point person. And I said, here's my problem. And about 30 seconds later, the housing office called back and said, how many rooms do you need? Another problem I had when I was there was I had these volunteer students who would read for me, but they couldn't park in front of my, uh, my dorm. There was no parking. Now, next door, there was a, a university, a law school building uh, with a big parking lot reserved for faculty. And the faculty were all around the world. They weren't there. I couldn't get parking spots. I called up the Dean of Students and five minutes later, how many parking spots do you need? They just had a way of breaking the ice, uh, breaking the log jam. And by doing it institutionally, and again, not a major cost or whatever, it was just uh, looking at systems and how to fix them, not just making people fight each of the bureaucratic barriers they faced one at a time. It made a huge difference. Now, uh, we, we're back in Canada with David Lepofsky, a disability rights lawyer who's my guest today on the Radical Reverend Show, and um, your call to the bar, hurdles there at all, getting into practice? No, it was just fun. I had a great time. But uh, uh, getting into, you know, I, I got a job working uh, for the provincial government where I worked for 33 years, and I had a great career uh, doing first civil litigation, then constitutional litigation of the Charter Rights, and then finally 23 years of criminal appeals in the Crown Law Office criminal. I had great colleagues, a, an office that was very supportive. And I, uh, uh, I was fortunate to have a, a, a wonderful career there. But for me, it wasn't enough uh, because I cared a lot about disability rights. And I decided to become very active as a community volunteer, community organizer. And that's when I got involved in this, this whole legislative reform thing. So as an employee of the government, what was that like? Did you, any hurdles there with the public service? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I have to tell you that there is a, a an earlier step before we get there, which is mm -hmm. when I was finishing my legal education, the uh, uh, two main things were going on. One, in Ontario in 1980, the provincial government was considering amending the Human Rights Code to include disability and making some other changes. And I got involved in a coalition uh, that was advocating for that. And I, that's where I kind of cut my teeth and learned on being on the leadership team. But also uh, 41 years ago, uh, a prime minister with the name Trudeau, um, the dad of our current fellow, uh, decided to bring home the constitution, put a charter of rights in it and include an equality clause, which is great, except they left disability out. And I and others got involved in fighting for that. And I got to, I'm one of the people who got to actually appear before the House of Commons uh, when I was 23, uh, to argue for the disability amendment and uh, our combined efforts of a lot of us won. We, we actually, equality for people with disabilities was the only right that was added to the charter during the patriation debate. And if you go to YouTube and search on Charter of Rights of David Lepofsky, you could see my presentation. And uh, I, I cringe when I 
uh, describe what I hear me because my skills were not uh, fully formed back then. But the one advantage of it is I had hair back then. Um, but in any event, uh, later when I got to the government and I started doing my disability rights advocacy, um, it did not become a problem within the government for a couple of reasons. One of which was by the time I was doing community-based advocacy, I did uh, law lectures and talks for judges and stuff. And that's what all lawyers can do, whether they work for government or not. But starting in the 90s, a number of us started <clears throat> organizing to a grassroots campaign to get a Provincial Disabilities Act passed inspired by the Americans with Disabilities Act that was enacted in, in Congress in 1990. Um, and I had a couple of advantages, one of which was that um, I had um, been very careful about how I did my advocacy. I wasn't partisan. Um, I was very kind of professional. I didn't pull my punches, but uh, I made sure that nobody could catch me on inaccuracies or whatever. I, I, in fact, decided that I would hold myself and my community advocacy to the same role, sort of standards of ethics that we were held to as Crown Counsel in court. Um, and that helped. The second thing that helped me a lot was that um, in 1995, I was blessed with the incredible uh, uh, privilege of receiving the Order of Canada for my disability advocacy. So I, I wore my Order of Canada pin when I did this advocacy, and I basically said, if if Her Majesty the Queen through the Governor General has honored this activity, I, I, I've got to keep doing it. I can't stop, you know, and I carried on. And finally, I kept the job at that point working in the criminal law division, and I did not do advocacy on criminal law issues publicly. Um, I limited myself to activities that had nothing to do with my job. And the most that ever happened in my office, Sherry, was a couple of my colleagues pulling me aside and saying, hit harder, do more. <laughs> but uh, I, I, seriously, you know, uh, I, I had to make sure that I gave nobody any opportunity to um, hit me with being inaccurate, misleading, and any of that stuff. And so I was, you know, I, my style is to make sure I've got it right before I say it in public. And you've worked through, I mean, when I'm looking at your career years in the public service, you've worked through every different party in terms of leadership in the province, haven't you? Oh yeah, no, conservative, liberal, Mike Harris, all the way to, you know, Dalton McGinty, Kathleen Wynne. And then, you know, I retired before Doug Ford came in, but uh, and I started when Bill Davis was the premier and Roy McMurtry was our attorney general, um, which, but- And you had it, Bob Ray in there as well. So you have oh, absolutely. Every, every party uh, yeah. to answer to, sort of. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. And, but one of the things that I did, the other advantage I had is that, you know, I was, a, when I was in the criminal process, sorry about this. No problem. Just unplug it so it doesn't ring anymore. It's okay. But when I was in the criminal prosecution service, I'm surrounded by career crowns who are absolute professionals. And they knew this wasn't interfering with my work. And my private life was my own business. And what so about, that just, that just yeah, worked. What about the other activists that you worked with? Because sometimes activists, um, uh, you know, barrel head and you had the skills and, and you had the, you were, you had the ability. Um, but what about the others um, that maybe, 
Yeah, was that a problem, just organizing people, uh, speaking on behalf of others and getting others to speak? Can I tell you something? The, 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 uh, for me, the most exciting thing um, is not getting laws passed, though that's amazing when it happens. For me, the most amazing thing is watching and helping others become activists. Because the biggest barrier we face as disability community is not governments that don't care, and we face those, or bureaucrats that are overloaded with other things, and we face lots of those, or a media that deprioritizes our issues too often. And believe me, especially during COVID, we face those. Uh, the biggest barrier I found between us and success is the overwhelming feeling by a number of folks with disabilities that we can't make a difference. It's hopeless. And I don't fault them for feeling that way. Uh, I, I don't disrespect them whatsoever. But I found that it to, if we can get people to just send that first tweet to make that first phone call to a politician to write that first letter to an editor or show up to the first public event, um, that overcomes that. And then all of a sudden you get them excited and people, they just hunger for more. Well, I have to tell you, David, it's not limited to the community of disability activists. Uh, I think that's generalized to all activists. And in fact, to politicians themselves who feel powerless when they aren't, <laughs> you know, when they're not. Um, so let's jump right in to what I know you as, and, and you've done so much more, of course, but uh, the Accessibility for Ontario's uh, Disability Act. Um, how did that start, the genesis of that, and then uh, hurdles, and then, uh, then how did you finally get that done? Okay, now I'm gonna give you the very, very short version, but if our listeners wanna learn more, if you just go to YouTube and search on David Lepofsky, L-E-P-O-F-S-K-Y and A-O-D-A. I've actually got a number of talks on this and I tell the story. Or you can go to our website, aodaalliance.org. Or you can just follow me on Twitter at David Lepofsky, L-E-P-O-F-S-K-Y. And you'll find much more about this. But in a nutshell, what happened was we won in 1982 um, the right to be to have disability discrimination banned by the Charter of Rights and banned by the Human Rights Code. And these were huge victories. Um, but after a decade, we found we weren't making enough progress. As quickly as one barrier came down, another two popped up. Um, and we had to figure out why. And a number of us informally were chatting about it. And the reason was twofold. One, to enforce those rights, you've got to go lawyer up and go to a court or a human rights tribunal. And most people with disabilities don't have the time, the resources, the access to legal services and so on. So for them, it's a law that was great on paper, but couldn't implement in their lives. Uh, even if they win her cases, totally winning cases. Um, and I'll give you an illustration of that. Uh, some people may or may not know that the reason that they announced subway stops in Toronto and bus stops on the TTC is not out of the goodness of their heart. Because they had to sue them twice, once for the subways and once for the buses and streetcars. It took years and they lawyered up and fought as hard as they could to oppose me. A lot of people don't want to go through that. I don't want to go through that. Now, that's not to say that every barrier is 
defended that way. But still, that's one of the problems. The other problem is if you're an obligated organization, if you're listening to us and you have a restaurant or a store or a place of employment and you want to do the right thing, if you pick up the Charter of Rights and the Human Rights Code and read them, you go, what do I do? And they just say, don't discriminate and do accommodate. And that doesn't tell you how to format your website or how wide to make the aisles uh, or other steps you need to do to make your place uh, accessible for all people with disabilities. Um, and so we decided we needed a new law, what, not one to replace the Human Rights Code or the Charter, but one that would be imp would implement them without us having to sue one barrier at a time. And so that every organization didn't have to reinvent the accessibility wheel one barrier at a time and one organization at a time. So we started out as 20 minutes in a 20 people in a room at Queens Park in November of 1994. Uh, and through an incredible chain of events, we sort of formed a coalition. We didn't know quite what we wanted. We just knew we wanted a new law. And I stumbled into becoming a co-chair within a few weeks and then later the chair. We carried on for 10 years and we, we literally did it one party at a time uh, and one MPP at a time, and sometimes one municipality at a time. And when we started, disability organizations were all overloaded. They were busy with other things. And if you came to them with this, it's like they got a million priorities and this is a million and one. So it was a slow slogging process. Um, and, and, and perhaps if I could just interject, sure. and perhaps talk just to tell, because we only have about five minutes left, terrible, yeah, yeah. but true. Um, tell uh, listeners what the act is. What, what does it does What the know? act does now that was passed in 2005 is it says three things. One, Ontario must become accessible to all people with disabilities by 2025. That was passed in 2005. It gave 20 years, which seemed like a long time, but uh, governments frittering away time means we're actually way behind schedule. Number two, it puts someone in charge. It didn't just say, oh, let's make the world better. Isn't that nice? It said the government of Ontario has to lead us there. And the third thing it did is it said what the government has to do. No, the government doesn't have to go out and fix every barrier in society, but the government has to do two things. They have to pass a series of regulations called accessibility standards that will tell organizations, what they got to do and by when. So that they don't, they can know what they got to do. That would solve one of our problems. And the second thing is it provided for a system of public enforcement so that we individuals with disabilities didn't have to be private accessibility cops suing one barrier at a time. The design was right. Unfortunately, government implementation has been so sluggish that we're way behind schedule. We've made progress, but it, we're way behind schedule. But that was the design that we came up with and persuaded all parties to support. Which is an astounding victory, just have to say up there with your others. Um, and my you know, path crossed with yours um, when you came and tried to get them to enforce it faster and to do what they were supposed to be doing. Um, how's that going? Well, they're still doing a crappy job, but what, what is important for people to know is how much an individual can make a difference. And in this case, no, I'm not pandering, but the individual is, is you. Because we were trying to get the government to 
um, tell us how many violations are there and how many inspections have you done and what have you done to enforce? And they wouldn't answer. They wouldn't answer and they wouldn't answer. So um, a certain Cherry DeNovo got up in the House during question period and pounded the minister and also, I think, made a few contacts with, uh, oh, I don't know, the Toronto Star. And within a day, there was an, uh, an editorial in the Star slamming the government. And within about a week, we got the data. The government handed it over to us and asked if we'd only keep it quiet for a little bit so that they could try to come up with a fix because the data was embarrassing. Well, we made it public and got after we gave them a little breathing room and they, there were some headlines and more editorials slamming the government. Uh, and then they beefed up enforcement. They did beef it up for about a year until the next minister went and cut it by like a third. But uh, one opposition member, and I have told this story to MPPs who are frustrated and, and tell them if, if you can get up there and persuade your caucus to do just one question, you can make a big difference as you did. And it, it, it was back in 2013. I know for you, it was like one of your 8 million fights as an MPP, but for us, it was really decisive. Well, well, thank you for that. Um, just to, if you're just tuning in, um, you've missed it. Uh, but please do listen on our podcast, which comes after the show and will be up forever, uh, with this interview with David Lepofsky, who's way more than just a disability activist, uh, also a visiting prophet, Osgood, but also, and most importantly, an activist that has changed laws. And, I, you know, I'm not being modest, but I'm just saying without you, David, wouldn't have happened. Without uh, your activism, that wouldn't have happened. And I say this to all the activists, it's your face, your ability, your voice that's really brought this to the fore. And, uh, you know, thank you. A <laughs> big thank you. Well, it, it, it's very kind of you. I, you know, having had the privilege of working with so many amazing uh, grassroots folks, around the province, some of whom, too many of whom are no longer alive. The important thing that I wanna just say is, I become the public face, and I hope I've contributed to the process, but I'm, uh, there's a lot of heroes that made it possible. Uh, and if they weren't there, we wouldn't, they, we wouldn't be there. And they, they weren't people with law degrees and extensive experience with public speaking, some of them would just be a mom worried about their kid um, or a dad worried about their kid or somebody with a speech impairment who was not comf comfortable speaking in public but decided to overcome it or whatever it may be. Um, and they showed the power of the individual. And I believe now in 2021 with the advantage of social media, Zoom, uh, Twitter and so on, our ability to do this for to empower those folks is more than ever. Thank they you. are have more potential than ever. Thank you. And that's going to have to be a wrap. Thank you, David, for being on Radical Reverend Show. The sound of your city. CIUT 89.5 Toronto. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. It is such an honor and a delight to have Shannon Bertrand on the show. Um, she is one of those rare activists, which we've been highlighting and will be doing over the next many weeks, that has actually changed laws. And the law in this particular instance is uh, the one that made post-traumatic stress disorder a workplace injury for first responders. 
Uh, Shannon Bertrand's a paramedic, and uh, we're going to talk to her about just what went into that. Shannon, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Oh, well, thank you so very much for having me, Sherry. I really appreciate the interest. So let's start with you. Um, growing up, where did you grow up? Um, what made you an activist? Was there something in your childhood, in your growing up period, that right. most people, you know, if something happened to them like it happened to you, would kind of do what they could and then just kind of retreat? But you didn't. Talk about your upbringing. Well, I was born and raised in a small northern Ontario community um, with a population of less than 5,000 at the time. Uh, I grew up in the lakes and rivers and uh, in the trees and the bushes <laughs> in a lovely environment. Um, I did meet some adversity as a child. Um, I lost my father when I was very young at the age of 15 to cancer. Um, so it wasn't without adversity. Um, but uh, um, overall, um, I had a great upbringing in the northern community. Um, always uh liked um, our local police officers and, and their role in the community. My father was a volunteer firefighter. So I had exposure to emergency services uh, at a young age. Um, my father's best friend was a police officer. Uh, both of his best friends were both police officers. And um, as I said, he was a volunteer firefighter. And when I was young, uh, back in the day when you could do silly things, I used to go to calls with him. I'd have my gear all set up by the bed and be ready to go uh, on any call that came in. They'd often let me go with them or at least got to sit at the hall and talk in the radio every once in a while. So I had a strong sense of serving the community from uh, from childhood onward with, uh, you know, prime exa examples such as my father uh, volunteering his time and, and whatnot. Um, from there, I went on to university and uh, I did a degree in law with a concentration in criminology and criminal, criminal justice. Um, and I think it was at that point in my life that things really started to turn. Um, the criminal justice system uh, to me at that time was corrupt and uh, I couldn't foresee a future in that direction. And I knew I wanted to serve and uh, Paramedicine had always interested me. In fact, I dispatched our local ambulance and fire services as a team. So I began uh, a career as a paramedic uh, in the early 90s and uh, subsequently uh, went on to uh, the highest levels attainable um, and reached all the goals that I'd wanted to as far as respects to paramedicine. So um, wasn't long during my career in, into paramedicine um, that I encountered some uh, life-changing events that I didn't know uh, would ever change my life in a heartbeat the way that they did. So I want to go back um, to your para, to your training. So where did you do your training and then where did you start to work in paramedicine? Uh, I did my training uh, here in the GTA. Uh, I was at Centennial College. Um, I believe that was in, oh boy, I don't even want to say, but I started with the city of Toronto in 99. Prior to that, I had worked up the James Bay coast, um, on a helicopter and on land up there. So it was very exciting and very interesting way to start the career. 
followed by um, a couple of years out in Nipigon and Thunder Bay Way before I made my way to the big city. Got a little bit of experience under my belt before I uh, made my way to the big smoke. And, and what describe a typical day in the life of a paramedic, your life in a big urban center. I mean, you've had experience all over from rural to urban, but um, I guess my first question is what was the most challenging, rural or urban? And then what's the kind of typical day in both for a paramedic? So people get a feel for the job. Uh, it's an extremely high stress environment, of course. Um, unfortunately, we're subject to... Uh, a lot of uh, tragic incidents in a day, um, especially in uh, uh, the urban community and rural as well, but not so the call volume is a little bit less out there, not near there. Uh, sorry, the tragedies out there are equally as uh, terrifying as the ones experienced in, in the urban setting. It's just uh, they don't seem to happen as frequently, thank God. Um, uh, in the urban setting, however, you're, you've dealt with challenges on a daily basis, um, as in the rural setting, and uh, it's demanding job, it's physically demanding, it's mentally demanding, and psychologically challenging as well. Mm -hmm. You're subject to uh, many different types of traumatic events in a day that not everyone should see, and we're only regular everyday people who put on a uniform every day and go in and do our damnedest to do our best. I don't know whether you've ever seen a film, but it's one of my favorites. Um, it kind of is a sleeper, like nobody much knows about it, but it was made by Martin Scorsese um, and had Nicolas Cage play a paramedic called Bringing yeah. Out the Dead. Do you know that? I mean, I, I just, I, I mean, when I, when I saw that movie, I thought of you and all others <laughs> like you, but I mean, just to encapsulate it for the listeners, I mean, this is a paramedic just at the end of his tether and he's, he keeps trying to quit. He keeps trying to get fired and they won't fire him and he can't yeah. quit because they need him so desperately. So he's just running from one trauma to another without sleep. Um, I mean, it really is a, a look at, you know, the worst of <laughs> and the demands of that kind of life. Yeah, It's not always a great environment to be in. It's like I said, it's demanding on a daily basis and it's not without a high stress, uh, you know, uh, on each and every day and each and every incident. You know, uh, you're going into the unknown on many instances and um, your life can be changed in an instant. So let's talk about that change in an instant, just as much as you're comfortable, because I don't want to put you back through it. Um, but I mean, you came across trauma and it had its effects. And maybe maybe talk about those effects and, and what they were like and what then brought you into uh, my office when I was a sitting member of provincial parliament. Right. Um, so early on in my career, I experienced a very traumatic event that changed everything for me. I won't go over the details of the event itself, but I will tell you that uh, it was a life-threatening event. Um, and uh, and this was threatening your life? Threatening my life, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. My life was in danger. And um, as a result of that danger, um, I started developing signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, but I didn't recognize it at the time. I became uh, getting very ang angry. Um, I was having flashbacks of the incident. Um, I noticed that I would startle easily or be very jumpy, loud noises, uh, confining spaces. Um, 
and, you know, it could be any variety of now unknown triggers that would set off, uh, you know, uh, a flood of unwanted memories of the tragic event. And, and Shannon, did you seek help at that point or what, what no, did you do regarding those symptoms? Mm -hmm. uh, I did not initially, I didn't realize I was sick. Um, and unfortunately at that time, there wasn't uh, a lot of help out there either. When I did finally recognize uh, that I was ill and that I was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, there, there weren't very, uh, very many, um, there weren't very many uh, resources available. And certainly um, it wasn't a common workplace complaint at that point in time. And I was afraid to uh, come forward uh, because of the stigma associated with a mental health, mental health um, report. Um, not only that, um, uh, when you don't recognize what's wrong, it takes time to get help, you know, and sometimes it's someone from the outside that realizes that perhaps there's a problem, then you need some help. Um, so it took some time. Um, and like I said, once I realized I need the help, the help wasn't really there. Uh, I could get a psychologist at my own cost. Um, I think our benefits at the time covered approximately $300. So that might have been one session. <laughs> um, so I sought out help in a variety of places and organizations and um, I, I didn't receive what I was looking for and also I felt I was uh, being treated unjustly and my sense of justice uh, arose and I thought I need to do something here because I can't find any help. There's no help available. I'm afraid to make a claim. So what am I going to do? And, and why were you afraid of making a claim? I, I Just to uh, listeners, I'm talking to Shannon Bertrand, um, paramedic, who was the inspiration, the activist behind getting post-traumatic stress disorder as a workplace injury in Ontario for first responders. And um, and maybe should I, I should jump in here, Shannon, and say that very much in, in our first responders, from police to fire to paramedics to um, uh, to corrections officers um, to dispatchers, there's this kind of suck it up attitude in the workplace, isn't there? Like it, it's very tends to be a very male atmosphere in the workplace, and it's very much a kind of militarized atmosphere. And it's like don't complain, right? Deal. Right. There's uh, there's always another call. And unfortunately, um, you know, um, I must say nowadays things are, are much different from what they once were. But, uh, you know, uh, yeah, there's stigma associated with uh, uh, going in and, you know, saying, look, I, I think I'm sick mentally. Uh, I have no physical injuries to show you. Um, but something's wrong and it's an invisible injury. So how do I, number one, explain it to you and prove it to you that this exists and it's ripping my life apart? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned making a claim. And so, again, we have listeners from all over the place. Um, so in this province, making a claim would be to the workmen's, what used to be called Workmen's Compensation Board. Um, um, uh, and you can make a claim there. Um, but what, what was the problem with that process? Why didn't you follow that along? Well, um, I was afraid to initially, um, uh, 
there wasn't uh, any guarantees that I would be compensated in any way, shape or form. And then it would be known that I had uh, an illness. And so um, that's a big step. That takes a lot of courage to say, look, I'm not, I'm not well mentally and I need help. It takes a lot of courage to come out and say that. Yeah, and not only that, but I, I should point out to listeners that back in the day, um, you know, there, there was a very good chance your claim would be dismissed because Absolutely. they were looking at the time they were trying to, you know, you had to point to an incident and then you had to put to some. And again, mental health was just not seen the way it is now. Mm-hmm. So maybe, t- yeah, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, mental health is not certainly not seen in the same facet that it is uh, currently. Um uh, thanks to you and many others. Uh, well, thanks to you. <laughs> and so, so let's let's take you then. Um, you walked in and you didn't speak to me initially. You spoke to one of my staff people in, in my office. Uh, uh, this is a member of provincial parliament, which is where this uh, you know order of, of business really uh, exists: health and well-being, etc. Um, what what prompted that? I mean, that's an incredibly brave step. Well, um, what prompted that, Sherry, was I finally did make a claim into uh, the WSIB, and um, my claim was denied. And the rationale, I'll never forget the words, um, not an acute reaction to a life-threatening event was the words in the letter that caught my eye and stood out for years and years and years. Um, I delayed reporting because I had post-traumatic stress, not critical stress, incident stress. And I delayed reporting my injury. And because it's an unseen, invisible wound, um, my claim was denied. So I looked for help um, because I felt this was unjust. What year was that? Do you remember? Because I don't even remember. Boy, I think that was around 2006 that it was denied. And I think by 2007 or eight, I'd made my way to you. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember my staff person um, bringing it to my attention and uh, I thank him for this, uh, but, you know, saying that this, you know, it's not just you, is it Shannon? It's, it's, it's every first responder in your play in, in doing a similar position. So did you, did you hear from any others or were you on your own still? Um, initially, I was on my own. However, uh, it didn't take time before momentum began. And I received a lot of support from my brothers and sisters in all of the emergency services, all first responders. Um, uh, they came together, together as different groups and individuals and um, uh, were very supportive um, and helpful in uh, my recovery, ultimately. Yeah, uh, just uh, again, speaking to Shannon Bertrand, a paramedic who was the inspiration, the person who brought this to my attention as a politician and uh, and was really um, the moving force, the driving force behind getting this made law, ultimately. I remember tabling the bill the first time and um, it was just like, whatever <laughs> was the response <laughs> in the place. Um, and uh, first of all, we tabled it for all workers and people said that was too broad. Then we kind of narrowed it down um, to first responders um, and then gradually expanded who those first responders were. Um, 
and right. there, there was, I mean, and the paramedics part of that, I remember there was even a bike ride to Ottawa, right? And there, there were like yes. fundraising and everything Absolutely. else that you inspired. You inspired Ms. Oh, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> I think a lot of people have their own initiative, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to have um, been a, a, a part of this and a, a part of the legislation, um, part of the bill that I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, there's so many others out there that were a huge part of this as well. Of course. And so I, I, I tabled it multiple times. I remember tabling it as often as I could. Um, finally got it to second reading status. I think it passed second reading, but but to, to those out there in listener land, I mean, there's various ways of killing a bill. One is just don't give it air at all. The other is pass it and then forget about it, never give it committee time and never move it on to third reading of law. So all of that happened you know, in the process of this bill. It was not easy, no. um, but I mean, momentum kind of grew. And I think, um, and I remember, and I, um, I, I don't want to say his name. Um, I haven't uh, checked it with his family, but I remember a young police officer committed suicide. That made front page news and along with it, um, the necessity for this bill. So ultimately we had a lot of union support. I mean, we had corrections, we had paramedics, we had police, we had fire. That's what I think did it. Um, but you started it, right? <laughs> well, thanks very much for saying so. Um, I just recognize the uh, injustice and the need for um, a change in the legislation because the, the wording was wrong and it didn't allow for any first responders or any individuals who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder to make a claim. I think it was kind of stressful just to get this built going. I mean, did you, I mean, I didn't have much power. I was like the back, back bench of a, well, not quite the back bench, but in a third party, I certainly wasn't part of the government. Um, I mean, you watched all this, you know, parliamentary finagling, what kept you hopeful through all that? Um, what kept me hopeful through all of it, boy, uh, there needed to be a change. And I knew this wasn't necessarily going to affect my claim, but it needed to work for others. I didn't want anyone else to go through the uh, the tremendous tragic events that I had to go through in order to get help. It was it was um, so saddening and uh, so angering. I think that a lot of anger fueled my fire at that time because and my sense of justice and righting wrong. Um, there clearly was an error in the law and. We just needed people to see that. Of course. Um, in, in my book, and I guess this is a shameless plug, but the queer evangelist, I tell a story of um, another person like yourself. Uh, you were the mover and shaker, but this came after as the firefighters got behind the bill as well, right. um, of a firefighter who phoned our office at Queen's Park and said he was going to kill himself. And right. I said, well, um, I have to report this. And he said, please don't, because it will be my friends that come. And I don't want to... I don't yes. want to put them through the trauma of finding me. And that Absolutely. ultimately stopped him, um, which which shows where it's at. Yeah. You know, go ahead, you know, Shannon. We are a big family um, out there, all, all of us. And uh, we try to take care of our own and everybody else. And we do the best that we can do to do that each and every day. Um, another thing that uh, that happened with this bill uh, to make post-traumatic stress disorder a, a workplace injury for first responders was 
um, that this was not really a partisan issue. And I say this to activists, you know, um, don't make this a partisan issue, get everybody on board. And I, I think the first time, the first question that he uh, asked the government when he was elected leader of the conservatives, Patrick Brown, who's now the mayor of Brampton here, um, was, you know, why aren't you passing this legislation, <laughs> which, which like all the, you know, again, we live in a patriarchy, like all men didn't, didn't credit its source, right. but, but I mean, at least he asked that as a question. So he had the conservatives on board, the pressure was growing on the government. And finally, finally, they brought it in. I remember that press conference where the government said they were going to make it law. You were at Queens Park, there were tons of press. Um, there were people representative of all of the unions that were fighting for it by this time. What started as your trip into my office became something that spread right across the province of Ontario with some 15 million people. Um, what were your feelings that day at Queens Park when it became law? Oh boy, uh, I distinctly remember being there and I'll never forget that. And uh, I was just overwhelmed with joy and happiness um, that uh, finally the law had been passed and uh, justice been served, so to speak. And that uh, most importantly, my colleagues, my brothers and sisters, uh, all first responders um, are now covered under that legislation, under the presumptive legislation where the onus has shifted and, and whatnot, you know, it's no longer um, a, a scary system, for lack of better words. Mm -hmm. You know, the help is there. Now. Yeah, you don't have to prove. I mean, it's assumed that you're going into danger zones every day and that a certain percentage of folk are going to experience post-traumatic stress disorder as a, a byproduct of the job. This is a workplace injury. And so it should yeah. be presumptive. You shouldn't have to prove it. Um, and so that that did become law. And I have to tell you, one of one of the things that bothered me about that day was, I mean, I just kept saying to the press, this is the woman you should be speaking to, you, Shannon Bertrand. And so then they would all gang up on you. And I, I just felt, oh, like for somebody who supported, who has experienced PTSD, like to have all these press descend on you and some of them asking totally inappropriate questions. I thought about what brought it on, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I just thought, ah, but you, you, um, you were a champ. You, you really held your own there. And, and so let's go back to you just, just to finish sure. this interview. Um, so um, law aside, you, you're an activist, you've changed the law for, for thousands and thousands of people in this yeah. industry, not just now, but forever going forward. Um, yeah. How Shannon, what, did you get some help finally? Uh, I did, you know, uh, after approximately 13 years, I believe it was, my claim was finally um, approved. So um, at that point I was uh, allowed to have my medical paid for um which included uh different therapies and such um so yeah it's uh and there is therapy for ptsd i we should put that word of hope out there so I, there yeah. is and mm -hmm. i'm living proof uh i've returned to work so you can do it um you know uh with the bill now resiliency is uh, a greater possibility than what it once was because the treatment is there and it's readily available to you now um, whereas before it wasn't. And unfortunately, that kept a lot of people sick for a long time. It's but interesting. Now, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, by all means. 
No, it was interesting. Another little side I remember, I remember so much from so many years on that bill, but um, the head of the, what used to be called workman's compensation, but the board that gives or denies claims, um, that head, his own brother had suffered from PTSD as right. a first responder. That also helped because he was also putting pressure on the government to make this law. Absolutely. Like I said, there's so many people that were involved in this and making it go forward. It's incredible. And I thank each and every one of them for everyone's part and everything. Um, you know, it's made a huge difference. I think it's not only contributed to um, uh, the legislation, but to the mental health uh, in general. And uh, it seems to have been uh, something that's picked up a lot of momentum in the last while. And I hope that the bill um, and uh, the legislation was uh, part of that momentum. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's saved lives. It's literally saved lives. And that's the kind of legislation that's important. So we just have a few minutes left, but I, is there any advice you would give to other activists like yourself? Um, I mean, this was a long haul process. This was not an right. easy bill to get through. Um, it, it, we, we kept broadening support, but tell it in your own words. What, like, what should activists do who have an issue that they're passionate about um, from your Don't experience? Don't be afraid to speak. You're not invisible and one voice can turn into the voice of thousands and thousands. It just takes that one person to listen and you are that one person, Sherry. And well, and, yeah, and you're the one person that brought it to my <laughs> office because this is something yeah. that people don't understand about politicians. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, they should, but you know, we don't we don't see everybody's job. We don't know what's out there. And and so it, we re rely on activists just like your, yourself to right. bring these issues forward. Otherwise, we don't know. Right? Bring your issues forward. Be heard. Don't give up. Um, someone will be willing to listen. It might not be here on your first attempt or your second or even your 15th. But, you know, someone will li finally listen and then it'll click and never give up the fight, you know, like, if you believe and you're passionate about what you believe in, then keep on going. Uh, tenacity is really important in this and uh, political tenacity is uh, certainly a huge aspect of it as well. And uh, let other people know, get other people involved, get groups involved, other advocates involved and uh, build some momentum. And absolutely, speaking um, again here to Shannon Bertrand, who is paramedic and who exhibits all of those uh, tenacity, stick with itness. <laughs> um, and I'm sure if, if my staff hadn't listened and I hadn't listened, you would have gone on and talked to somebody else until somebody did. So, and that uh, and that is what brings about change. So politicians then just do the work that you bring to them to do. So oh, thank you thank so you. much. Uh, for awesome. being on the Radical Reverend show and um, and you should be covered with kudos and medals. Oh, so <laughs> anyway, at least at least mental health is a gift that you enjoy. So yes, there you go. absolutely. <laughs> okay. there, uh, talking with you, Sherry, and I hope uh, things are great. Yes. And you too, Shannon. Keep on mm -hmm. keeping on. You too.